The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. This morning, we have a special guest, Lisa Rankin, who is a physician. She is a speaker. She is a New York Times best-selling author and founder of Home Health Medicine Institute. I had the pleasure of meeting Lisa several months ago and was so taken by her passion for her work and her just exuberance and willingness to move past fear and do what matters to her in the name of helping all of us. Lisa, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. It's great to have you here. Where are you today? I am in Mirror Beach, California, where I live, right on the oh. ocean. <laughs> oh, in the Bay Mirror Area. Beach is beautiful, beautiful, yes, beautiful. I love yeah. it. Very close to the redwoods, just fantastic. Yeah. Well, that must be very soothing to the soul to have that kind of living, because I know you travel the world, and you are on the go a lot. Well, I actually don't leave here very often. It's I, I won't do more than about one speaking gig a month, because I love being here, and I have a nine-year-old. So oh. it's... It's medicine for my soul, really, to be here, and I don't, I don't do well in cities, to be honest. <laughs> I'll visit oh. them to go and do a speaking gig. I'm going to New York City in a couple of weeks, but it is um, an assault to my system to be in cities uh. these days. I am such a nature girl. I'm very much like a country girl. <laughs> <laughs> well, where did you grow up? I grew up, well, between San Diego and Orlando, Florida. Okay. So it's not not such small towns, but no, um, no. It's like the older I get, the more I need to be surrounded by nature with a lot of solitude. Hmm. So let's talk a bit about how you got to where you are today. You went into medicine. You went to medical school. Uh, you became a practicing physician. Uh, you had an OBGYN practice for, what, eight years or something like that. Then you decided to do something different. What happened to you? Well, you know, over the course of my career, when I started my job in 1999, I was expected to see 25 patients a day, which I thought was a lot. I had never seen that many as a resident during my clinic days. And um, by the time I quit my job, I was expected to see 40 patients a day. Whoa. And if, if you do the math, that sort of evens out to about seven and a half minutes per patient. And I, I started feeling 
I mean, it didn't feel great in the beginning. Like I said, 25 patients didn't feel very good. But 40 patients felt like a violation. And I kept asking the people that I worked with if there was a way that I could see fewer patients and maybe make less money and have more time with my patients. And the way our practice was set up, um, you know, my partners kept saying no. And I started getting sicker and sicker and more and more depressed. And I, I wasn't even aware that I was making a choice every day. I felt like I didn't have a choice. I felt very helpless. But actually, I was making a choice. I was choosing comfort and security over following my soul's integrity. And, you know, I felt like I had to make that choice because my husband wasn't working. My then-husband wasn't working. I had a newborn. I had a mortgage. You know, I had adult responsibilities. And I had no way of making money other than being a doctor. So I just assumed that's what you do. But my soul was trying to communicate with me in every way that it could, you know, through dreams, through my physical symptoms, through my um, emotional feelings, um, you know, through my intuition. And I wasn't listening. And so I had to get hit by the cosmic two-by-four to level me. Um, I I ended up giving birth to my daughter my dog died. My brother wound up in full-blown liver fa- failure as a rare side effect of the antibiotic Zithromax that he was taking for a sinus infection. And then my beloved physician father died of a brain tumor all within two weeks. Oh, my. And it still took me another year to quit my job after that. Like, somehow I just force-functioned through that. My, my husband, who was the stay-home dad for my little girl, ended up cutting two fingers off his left hand with a table saw a few months after that. <laughs> and it was just like wow. a broke loose. Yeah, like everything fell apart in my life, and I was still forcing myself to function. Mm. And I just got to a point where, I, I mean, it was, it was insanity. It was, real, it was really a, a time of madness. And the integrity violations in my job just kept getting worse and worse to the point where I just couldn't do it anymore. And I had no backup plan. I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. All I knew was I can't do this at one more day. And people ask me often, like, how do you know when it's time to take a leap of faith? And right. I tell them it's when the pain of staying put exceeds your fear of the unknown. Then you don't even feel like you have a choice anymore. It's like you leap. Mm. Well, you know, wouldn't it be nice if people didn't have to reach that pain point? To make a change that is scary, but there's some knowing in them that they, they need to do this. You know, I keep thinking I might write a book about how to make decisions because I make decisions in a very, very different way than I used to. It used to require the cosmic two by four. And, you know, now my, you know, my mantra is cave early. <laughs> Like, don't wait. Don't wait until your body is screaming at you and, you know, the universe has to conspire to break you open. Like, pay attention to the subtle, the subtle signals. I mean, I, I don't know how the, the universe works, but I think we, I think our souls begin by speaking to us in very subtle, in subtle ways. You know, the, the voice of the soul is quiet. It's not usually screaming. It's, it's very um, mysterious and seductive, mm-hmm. but it's 
gentle. It's not the screaming voice of the ego. It's, you have to pay mm-hmm. attention. You have to meditate. You have to be in nature. You have to get quiet. Mm-hmm. And when you do, then you start sensing the subtle voice. And I think if we ignore the subtle voice, and it can come through dreams, it can come through inner knowings, you know, it can come through visions or a little voice in your ear or, you know, hearing spirit guides or, or whatever, whatever way, whatever mm-hmm. way you get that sort of guidance. And I think if we don't pay attention to that, then the, the body starts communicating with us. And it's also subtle. It starts with, like, gripping in the solar plexus or, like, tightness in the chest or feeling like your throat's constricted um, as your body's way of saying no. And, you know, your body says yes by, in these feelings of openness and expansiveness and sort of these, these um, yeah, open, op- various ways that the body can feel open is sort of my body's way of saying, hell yeah, you know. Right, and, right. Right? And if we ignore those subtle body symptoms, then I think the body starts to yell. And I, by the time I was 33 in my old job, I was taking seven medications for a whole host of health conditions that my doctors told me I would be dependent on those medications for the rest of my life. I'm now down to half of the dose of one of them. And so I think, I think that's, you know, I think the body then starts to scream. And if we're not getting the message from, you know, the cancer or the high blood pressure or the heart attack, then, you know, then I think the universe starts to organize our external world. And the things, the choices that we were, that we were too afraid to make start being made for us. Like the job you knew you were supposed to quit, you get fired. And the marriage that you knew you had to leave and didn't, your partner leaves you. Right. Like somehow the universe starts to organize to bring you into alignment with your truth even if you're too afraid to do it yourself. Sure. But if you cave on it, it's much, it's much gentler. Right. Well, it seems like that those things that we are not paying attention to, that will then happen to us. If we really are honest with ourselves and we look back, we will see how we actually set it up to happen. Yeah. Right? We will see the kinds of behaviors that um, supported the outcome that we got. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm a big big believer in, like, the zero tolerance for victim story kind of perspective Mm -hmm. on life. Like, I really believe that we co-create our lives and that we're the, you know, the sort of script writers and movie directors of the movie of our lives. And so we're participating. We're participating. And, right. I, you know, I don't say that without compassion for people that have had terrible things happen mm-hmm. in their life. And certainly we've all felt victimized by any number of things in our lives, myself included. But my perception of it is that I'm not truly a victim of that. Like on some level my soul organized that experience as a way for me to grow, as a way for my soul mm-hmm. um, become closer to oneness with the divine. So, so when you had all these, these experiences where everything began to fall apart and you really wanted to not be there, not feel that, 
and you knew something had to change. Um, you know, do you think that your having your daughter was such a huge motivator for you, such a, an, an enormous push for you? Um, because a, that's, a, that's your why, right? Well, you know, it's it's interesting because I haven't really thought about it as much with regard to Sienna, but what felt like the real uh, wake-up call for me was the fact that my dad was 59 and he had made his choices so that he really prioritized security and certainty. That was what, what, what mattered to my dad. And I watched him go from diagnosis to death in three months, and it was a huge wake-up call confronting my own mortality that that could have been me. I, that could happen to me at any point. That could happen to me right now. And I wanted to know that if I found out I had three months to live, I wanted to know that I would not change my life one bit. And when I asked myself, if I knew I was going to die in three months, would I be doing what I'm doing now? It was such a huge no that I was mm-hmm. like, what am I doing? What am I doing? I mean, I was able to think of like so many ways that I would change my life. I would not go and see 40 patients a day in my old job and take 72-hour call shifts and deliver 30 babies in a weekend anymore if I knew I was dying. And honestly, I can say now that that became a huge driving force in realigning my life because I can, I can genuinely say that if I found out today I had three months to live, I would still be here talking to you, Cheryl. I would still be... I would still be teaching the workshop at Kripalu that I'm about to teach. Like, I love my work. I love my family. I love my friends. I have, I'm very vigilant about self-care. I'm, you know, I do things that feel good. Like, I, I wouldn't change things. And that, that, for me, is the mark of a life well-lived. Absolutely. But it's also, certainly it's for my daughter as well. I want to be a role model for her in demonstrating that it's possible to follow your passion and live in alignment with your soul, and you don't have to sell your soul for security and comfort. Well, you know, you you have um, a real passion for the healthcare system making it different, right? So really changing how physicians practice, changing the whole system, the way it looks at healthcare or sometimes known as fixed care, and, you know, and also really influencing how each patient is taking responsibility for their lives and able to influence how they live and how they feel and how their body works in the world. And you have really taken major steps. You have put yourself out there very visibly. You are a speaker. You have published books. You are, you founded an institute. You have just kept pushing, pushing, pushing so that more than you can experience the opportunity for this belief. And as I look at all that you've accomplished at your young age and, you know, think you've just written a book called The Fear Cure, and I'm wondering how much of 
this is truly really more about your own journey. All of these lessons are more about what you've learned in your own journey. Well, you know, every book I write, for the most part, is about what I'm trying to learn. <laughs> mm. So mind it's funny because people, you know, I wrote Mind Over Medicine. It got a lot of attention. They made an, a, a public television special about it. And so, you know, it's published in, I don't know, 27 languages now. So it, it, a lot of people have read that book. So people make this assumption that I'm an expert in mind-body medicine. I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. I just read this book a couple years ago, and the book was my own exploration of all of the scientific data proving that the body can heal itself. But I didn't Uh, know this. Nobody taught me mm -hmm. this. Like, this was not part of my medical education. I had never read books like Bernie Siegel's Love, Medicine, and Miracles. Like, these, these, the whole idea of mind-body medicine was not even on my radar screen. And I had been a doctor for 10 years. Like, how did this happen that I missed out on this piece? But the book really was written as Lissa the student diving down the rabbit hole of, you know, studying spontaneous remissions and the placebo effect and all of that. And I was just taking my readers along on the journey. And the fear Uh, cure was the same way. The fear cure was the same way. I I had a theory that fear and disease were probably linked and I, I wondered whether there was any scientific data to validate that theory. And, in fact, I found this copious data. So the first part of the fear cure was kind of like mind over medicine part two. It's like scientific proof that fear causes heart disease and cancer. And the common wow. um, But then once I wrote that, I was like, oh, no, now what? I've just scared them more. <laughs> you know? <laughs> right? So I well, can't leave you know people what? hanging. <laughs> Well, and so we're going to talk more about that. We're going to take a break right now, but we're going to talk more about that and get into some of the detail of how you make that happen. Come right back. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexasaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CIO Talk Radio, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experiences with listeners as they discuss with Sunjog All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive. This means better care for customers and improves the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjog All every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel, the bottom line in business talk. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Welcome back to Leading Conversations, and we are speaking with Dr. Lisa Rankin today. 
Melissa is the author of so many books. We were speaking about her latest book, The Fear Cure, Cultivating Courage as Medicine for the Body, Mind, and Soul. All right, Melissa, so tell us about the core of this book. You said, you know, I've got to write this. I've got to make things happen because after <laughs> you wrote Mind Over Medicine, you felt like, oh, well, here's a lot of good, nice information, but now i got to tell people how to do it. So well, then... You know- Right. It it really was sort of a sequel to Mind Over Medicine because what I realized from working with patients and then from kind of going out on the road and talking a lot about Mind Over Medicine in in, in groups of doctors, patients, nurses, uh, you know, alternative medicine providers, I um, what I realized is that I was walking people through this process that I called the six steps to healing yourself. And it includes sort of tuning into your own intuitive diagnosis of what is in need of healing in your life and what does your body need in order to heal and what is your body saying no to and how can you make changes in your life to bring your life more in alignment with your soul's truth. And people were were doing this process. I was out there teaching workshops um, and people were writing the prescription for themselves. And then they would have this list. They've now written a list of what they sense needs to change in their life in order for their body to get better. And they would, and then I would ask them, I would say, okay, let, now obviously there's no guarantees, but let's just play a little game and assume that if you did everything on that list, you're, you would experience a, a full cure. Would you do it? And I was shocked because only about half of the people said, yes, they would do it. Ooh. The other half said, I'm too scared. These, these and what were they scared of when they said they were too scared? Did, was there a theme around what most people were too scared of? Well, you know, one of the shocking things that I found is that uh, a lot of people were actually scared of being well. They said, well, but if, I, if my disease went away, then I wouldn't get help around the house anymore. If my disease went away, I wouldn't get my disability check, and I'd have to go back to that job I hate. Like, a, a lot of them weren't even conscious of the fact that they were, they were getting their needs met because of their disease. They were getting sympathy from their husband. They were getting attention. They were getting help around the house. They were getting an out from their job. They were getting money because they were sick. And when confronted with... How did most with, people react when they began to ponder this possibility that this may be true for them. It's very uncomfortable. It's yeah. a very uncomfortable process. People love the idea of spontaneous remission and the body can heal itself, but when you start getting into the level of what does it take, what, what you know, and I, I love Kelly Turner's work. She did her Ph.D. thesis on people who had spontaneous remissions from stage 4 cancer. And you know, there's 3,500 case studies in the medical literature of people who had spontaneous remissions published in the Institute of Noetic Sciences Spontaneous Remission Project. I loved reading through this project because it's like, oh, my goodness, 3,500 people have, have been cured from seemingly incurable diseases. But none of these case studies in the medical literature say what the patient did. They're just, oh. you know, they're like medical miracles written up by the doctor but, you know, it, it, it's as if it was just an accident. And Kelly decided to go and start interviewing these people and find out, like, what happened. 
And she dis- uh, discovered, and these, these are included in Mind Over Medicine, but she found nine things that these people had in common. And, you know, when I started reviewing her data, it was so clear that these were some very, very brave people. This was mm-hmm. no accident. These were people that were willing to do anything to get better. Hmm. And they were taking their lives and their bodies into their own hands and following their intuition. And it was very much a spiritual path for most of them. So this was not, uh, this was not relegated to the realm of the rational materialist world that most of Western medicine lives in. They were, they were diving into the realm of miracles. Well, and you know, I've even heard people say, um, when, when we've been in conversations about, um, a different eating patterns or a different way of living or, you know, different levels of stress. And I've heard people actually say, well, you know, if I was dying of cancer, of course I'd change all that. Right. But I'm not. <laughs> and so right. I, I find that fascinating. And, and I'm not, that, I don't say that in judgment because I'm certainly not living as, as fully as I could be if I was managing my, you know, nutrition to the level that I could, right? But, but I'm, I find that fascinating about us as human beings. And I'm wondering how much of that is internal, you know, kind of the physical drive, and how much of that is simply the layering on of societal ex- expectations that we have now internalized in that way? Well, you know, I mean, the whole concept of, like I said, this is why my dad's death was such a wake-up call for me, because I realized I don't want to wait for stage four cancer to change my life. I want to cave early. Like, I don't want to wait until the universe has to give me the next cosmic two-by-four. But living that way is not for the faint of heart. And the way that I make choices, a lot of people look at me and think I'm just reckless. And I follow a different compass than I used to follow. I mean, I used Mm -hmm. to make decisions by, like, weighing out the pros and cons and analyzing it and thinking things through to their worst possible conclusion and trying to avoid regret and, you know, weighing the options in my mind and trying to make the most logical decision possible. And that's not how I do it now at all, <laughs> you know. And the way that and I do so you make decisions... you said earlier that you rely on your twi- intuition a lot. What I else do. do you do? I do. I, well, I, I follow spiritual guidance. Mm-hmm. And that comes in a variety of ways for me. Intuition is one of them. I think intuition is like... I sort of like to visualize that there's like the seen world and the unseen world and a, uh, you know, an, inc- an increasingly thinning veil between the two. And intuition is the, the portal. It's the way the spirit world, you know, communicates with the, the human world. Yes. But I think that the spirit world communicates with the human world in other ways, too. I mean, our bodies are a compass. So I listen mm-hmm. to my body. I feel, I feel into my body for those feelings of tightness that signal the cosmic no or those openings in my body that feel like the cosmic yes. Mm. I pay attention to synchronicity. Synchronicity is often how choices are made for me, where I have a practice that I learned from Tosha Silver of making an offering 
of things that I want to bring into being, desires in my life like unmet longings, problems that I think I have to solve, decisions that I think I have to make. I, I make an offering, I make a practice of offering them over to the divine and asking for help, asking for spiritual guidance. Help me make this decision. Help me bring this desire into being if it's meant to be or help me not want it if it's not meant to be. You know, help me solve this problem. And I, I, I think on the other side of that thin veil, it's like there's this whole realm of like unemployed spirit guides or something, like angels on the other side. They're just waiting. They're just waiting. I love for it. Unemployed spirit. That's great. <laughs> like they're not allowed to help unless we, ask, unless we ask for help. And then they're all like rallying to come and support us. So um, no, I get I very... Asking, asking for, for asking for help is a big deal. And I think of that, you know, not just across the board, but, you know, as I look at women and how women have changed and uh, accomplishing so much more um, out in the world these days, and, and I, I see that that whole concept of asking for help is, I think, really scary for people. Yeah. It means you're weak. It means that you can't do it. It means you're not competent. And, and yeah, I know it's not just for women, but I do see it a lot in women. Well, but all of that, everything you just said is, you know, stems from the small self, from the ego. It's, a, it's only the ego that wants to be in charge, that wants to be in control, that wants to be perceived as strong. Because the soul is actually, the soul is very humble and very willing to be led and very mm. strong in its vulnerability and transparency and humility. So there's nothing weak about the act of spiritual surrender. It's the ultimate mm. strength because what are we surrendering to? We're surrendering to love. And what's stronger than love, Right. But the ego hates it. The ego hates this because, and I don't even like to use the term ego. I, I, I recently heard Sue Mortar call it the protective personality, which I love yeah. because it takes all the judgment yeah. out of it. Yeah. I, I call it in the fear cure, I call it the small self. But I, I like protective personality even better because mm-hmm. the, it's that part of you that is afraid that everything's going to fall apart if you don't control it. Yeah. And actually, I've come to realize that my small self does not do a good job of running my life. When it's driving the car of Lissa, it, it, it does a bad job. But when my soul is driving the car of Lissa and making my choices, then very, very good things happen. And I don't have to, if I can't tell, if I, if I can't tell what choice to make, I can ask for help. And this is the ultimate strength. This is not a weakness. So, for example, I'll give you a very practical example. I was trying to make a decision with my soul twin, Dennis. We were thinking about teaching a writing workshop in Peru. But I was going to be traveling a lot internationally. I didn't want to leave my daughter. Dennis and I were, you know, were sort of on the fence about whether to do this. I kind of thought I was going to cancel it. He kind of thought we were going to cancel it, too. And we got a call from the venue that we had booked. We had put a down payment on the space. And we got a call saying, uh, your money, you'll lose your money in 24 hours if you cancel. So oh. we didn't want to lose our money, so we're suddenly like, oh, we need to make a decision within 24 hours. Well, suddenly I've realized I have not done my practice of offering and surrendering this to, to the divine. 
So Dennis and I both sit down and we do this little meditation together and we offer the whole workshop up to the divine and we say, if we're supposed to do it, show us. Show us that we're supposed to do it. Help us do it the right way. Like make it, roll out the red carpet for us because if this is what is aligned for us, we're, we're totally on board. But if we're not supposed to do it, stop us. Help us make the decision. Show us that it's a no. You know, keep us from doing the wrong thing. And so, and we, and we said, and I, I don't usually like to do this. I don't like to give God deadlines. But we mm. said, if possible, it would be great if we got this guidance within 24 hours. And <laughs> then, then we started paying very close attention. So now our eyes are open everywhere for signs. So literally 15 minutes after Dennis and I made this offering, I was at an airport. We had been talking on Skype. He was in Holland at the time. And I walk out, I walk into the Starbucks, and there's a big sign that says, say yes to Peru. And they're sampling this new Peruvian coffee. (laughs) I took a picture of it. I sent it to Dennis. (laughs) I love it. And over the next 24 hours, I got three yes signs, and Dennis got two yes signs. Well, all of a sudden, there's no, like, it's so clear that we're supposed to teach the workshop in Peru. Mm-hmm. And, all this, and, and there's no fear associated with that. It's just clear. And we want to follow what's aligned with the divine. And so it, suddenly all, any anxiety about making the right choice is over. We're mm-hmm. teaching the workshop in Peru in August. So... That's just one example. I could give you thousands of examples of uh, even the smallest choice. Even I'm the smallest sure, choice. I'm sure. Yeah. Well, and you know, I can imagine that many people would be saying to you, "Well, Lisa, okay, that might work for you, and you know, maybe you can um, afford to, you know, look at things like, you know, is it supposed to be happening? Is it not? But if I'm teaching a, a workshop, you know, was it because not enough people signed up, and so we weren't going to be able to pay for it. Was it because there were, you know, other things that we needed to be here for to take care of? You know, what what were the things, the practical things that everyone pays attention to that you're saying, well, now wait, <laughs> perhaps those aren't the whole story. Well, I'm not exactly sure what you're asking. Um... Can you rephrase the well, question? Well, I, I think, I think that, that many people would um, really push back on ah. give, give yourself up to, you know, hand, hand this over to spirit and, and wait for the sign because there, there may be all kinds of practical signs for them, practical reasons, um, real-life events that are saying... You know, you shouldn't do this. It's bad. Right, but that's do this. fear. Yeah. That, that's it's fear speaking. Right. Yeah, that's, that's what happens when you're letting fear make your decisions. So and I'll give you another example. Um, and this was a really scary one for me. So I, you know, I, I teach the Whole Health Medicine Institute. Uh, until this year, it was a two-track program. We had one nine-month program for medical doctors. And we had a four-month program for healthcare providers who were not doctors. So, um, you know, nurses, midwives, chiropractors, uh, you know, acupuncturists, um, alternative healthcare providers of various sorts. 
uh, health coaches, these sorts of people. So our biggest revenue generator in my business, and I have multiple people on six-figure salaries in my business that I'm responsible for, I pay their salaries. So I have practical concerns about my business. Uh, and I have to, you know, I have other people's families depending on me. So I'm not, it's not like I have a trust fund and I can just whimsically dance around. I mean, when I quit my job, I wound up $200,000 in debt. So practical concerns. And this year, I started getting signs right around New Year's that I was not supposed to teach the nine-month MD track program. Now, this is a $350,000 revenue-generating program for our business. But I started getting very clear guidance that I was supposed to put the doctors in the same group with the other providers, that I was supposed to mix the the institute and put everybody into the four-month program. Now, my team freaked out because I'm getting very, very clear signs that are saying I'm supposed to cancel that program. And, you know, my CEO is saying, wait a minute, but that's that's how we pay the bills. Like, you know, that's all well and good that you're getting spiritual guidance, but what about, what about the, the overhead? What about the, you know, paying salaries? How are we going to deal with that? And so it has also been quite a practice to be able to bring my team along with me where they realize that I, actually I'm not interested in my business unless it's a direct byproduct of my purpose. And if I'm on purpose and I'm following my I'm following spiritual guidance. If, I mean, if that means that we have to downsize the team, then I'm that committed to letting the divine take the lead in my life. But I also trust that every time that I've done that, things have gone well. Things have gone well. When you look back historically, things don't necessarily make sense in the, in the now-walking moment. But in retrospect, we can always look back and say, wow, no wonder Lissa made that choice. Now it makes perfect sense. I mean, even just look, quitting my job the way I did um, back in 2007, you know, at the time, everybody thought I was being reckless. What are you doing? You're a crazy person. You went to school for 12 years, and you're a full partner in a busy practice, and you're going to give up everything for, for no, with no plan and no backup and no safety net? And nobody else in the family bringing in money. But now people look back and they're like, wow, good decision. Mm-hmm. So I love it, that. as a direct byproduct of my purpose, that's a beautiful statement. Mm-hmm. That would be really nice mantra to live into. We're going to have more conversation with Lisa Rankin when we come right back. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. 
Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Welcome back to Leading Conversations, and we are speaking with Lisa Rankin today, the founder of the Whole Health Medicine Institute and multi, multi time New York Times bestselling author. Her most recent book, The Fear Cure. So, throughout this conversation, Lisa, um, you have encouraged. Throughout this conversation, Lisa, you have encouraged people to make sure that they listen to themselves, that they pay attention to the subtleties of their, of their hearts and their body and just, you know, their small thoughts that creep in. And, you know, we both know that this is tough. We both know that people have challenges with that. That's why you wrote the book, The Fear Cure. So how do people do this? Tell, you know, sum it up for us. Well, you know, one of the things that I wrote about in, in The Fear Cure is about how we as a culture have made a choice about our worldview, about how the world works. And mm-hmm. I, I don't think we even realize it's a choice. But there's evidence everywhere. If you look for it, you can see that we've created evidence that our worldview is right. And this worldview is based on what I call the four fearful assumptions, which is uncertainty is unsafe, right? So we have to do everything we can to make life as certain as possible, to guard against uncertainty. That loss, we can't handle losing what we cherish. So we have to protect what we love. We have to protect our money. We have to protect our family. We have to protect our, you know, loved ones, protect our job, whatever. The third one is that we live in a hostile universe. And certainly if you turn on the news, it oh, looks yeah. like we live in a hostile universe, right? So we have to, we have to guard against all the bad things that could happen in the world. And the fourth one is that we're all alone. We're not connected to one another. We're not connected to nature. We're all, we're, we're the, you know, the, the soul warrior in a hostile universe where uncertainty is unsafe and we can't handle losing what we cherish. And obviously, if you have that worldview, life is scary. But I had this intuition that it would be possible to live in a culture where we shift that worldview completely. And, and this is, I know this is possible on an individual level because this is my worldview. My worldview is just the opposite. I believe that uncertainty is the gateway to possibility. 
that if I don't know what the future holds, anything could happen. Miracles could happen. I could have a spontaneous remission, you know. I, I could have, I could win the lottery. I could, you know, Oprah could call. <laughs> like, anything could ha- happen, right? So there's almost a seductiveness to uncertainty for me. It's like, well, I don't know what's going to happen. How, what else? What other cool thing could happen next? Mm. So the second one, what if instead of I can't handle losing what I cherish, what if loss is natural and can lead to growth? And I look back at my perfect storm and when I lost my dad and so much loss, I lost, you know, I quit my job, like filled with loss. It was the best thing that ever happened to me. Because it was a rich, rich time of soul growth for me. And most of us who have experienced a devastating loss can look back and see that often it's loss that breaks us open. And that opening of the heart that happens, in the, that can happen, it doesn't always, sometimes we lock it down. But the opening of the heart that can happen in the wake of loss is, you know, can be miraculous. So what if loss is natural and can lead to growth? The third one, what if instead of a hostile universe, what if it's a purposeful universe? And I love the Albert Einstein quote. says, the most important decision you'll ever make is whether we live in a hostile or a friendly universe. Mm. I genuinely believe, it is my worldview, that spiritual guidance is everywhere, just waiting to help me make the most aligned decisions, the most aligned with my soul. And that everything that happens, even the things that feel terrible, are happening for the development of my soul. So even if I feel like a victim and something, it feels like something bad is happening to me, I'm able to very quickly, it, my turnaround is much quicker than it used to be, I'm able to very quickly get out of my victim story and say, why did I write this into my movie script? If life is a movie and I'm the script writer and movie director, why did I write this into my movie? How is my soul growing here? So I really believe that it's a purposeful universe. And I also believe that we're all one. And this is taught in many mystical traditions and many religions, that we, are, we all come from the same stardust. We're all interconnected with nature. We're all part of this collective consciousness. And anything that I do to harm another, I'm, I'm, I'm harming myself. That we are all... We are all interbeing. We're all interconnected in this web of life. And when I believe that we're all one in a purposeful universe where uncertainty is the gateway to possibility and loss is natural and can lead to growth, it makes me very brave. Mm. So I'm curious. You know, I, I absolutely agree with this and the, the whole concept of we are one. It, I, I, live, I love it. I live it. And... I'm always so curious about this part of it. When did we as human beings decide that that wasn't true? Well, you know, one of the great things for me about, uh, there was perfect timing in this because I was really anxious about writing this book. It's, I mean, you write a book called The Fear Cure, like get ready. All of your fears are going to come up. <laughs> like if you're arrogant enough oh, yeah. to think you can write that kind of book, like, Get ready. Right? So I was very, I was, I was actually afraid that my book was going to make people more afraid. Oh. So it was very confirming. I had just submitted the manuscript, and two weeks later, I was up at 16,000 feet in the Andes, living in a Caro village with my 
research partner Dennis who and I'm I'm researching another book called Sacred Medicine where I'm studying anomalous healing. I got very mm-hmm. curious about you know people like John of God or these shamans in Peru or these Chigo or... in China. Like what is happening here? Um, so I've been I've been researching that. So Dennis and I were up in living in this hut with ten people in in a Caro village up in the Andes, and these people were sequestered from modern culture for 500 years. Mm-hmm. And they have a very different worldview than we do, and they have exactly the worldview that I wrote about in The Fear Care. So it felt like this cosmic confirmation to realize there's a culture that already is living this way. So you say, when did we stop? When did we shift our worldview? I think when, when we split away from the indigenous way of life, we entered what Charles mm. Eisenstein calls the story of separation. And he wrote a great book called The Ascent of Humanity about how we're playing out the story of separation, how as a culture we have decided to experience the full, let's take the story of separation as far as we possibly can, hopefully so that as a culture we can collectively see that it's a choice and we can mm. go back to the, he, he calls it the age of reunion. And he believes, mm. he's a good friend of mine, he believes that we are right at the cusp of the age of reunion, that we're at the place where the story of separation has gotten so painful for everybody, it's not working for anybody anymore. Mm. Even the perpetrators, even the people that are most enforcing the story of separation, the, yeah. the people in ISIS or, or whatever, like, even the perpetrators are deeply, deeply pained. It's not working mm. for anybody anymore. We're afraid. We're lonely. We're sick. We're depressed. We're scared. But when I do you went see, to the Cara Village... Do you see an acceleration? Do you, do you, can you see the time when we all are walking together? I feel it. I, I've, I've seen it. I've, I feel it. Like... I've, I've experienced it on some level. I've, I've had some really mystical experiences that have mm-hmm. given me a, a, a gateway, a glimpse into what that's like. And once again, I pray that we cave early. Like, mm-hmm. let's not play it out the way it could go, which is, you know, global yeah. apocalypse. And if, if the entire planet is devastated by some sort of apocalyptic event, then we will be forced to you know, tribe up again. Mm, and, right. you know, that, that, that'll, that'll force us to do it, right? If, if our, our structures of society are completely devastated, then we'll have to go back to an indigenous way of life. But I pray that we right. can do it without that. And I think we mm. can. But it's a choice, which is why I'm really passionate about talking to people about how they make choices. I think now more than ever, we need to be able to follow spiritual guidance and allow ourselves to be vessels for the divine in the human world as light workers in service mm. to this planet, this species. I mean, it's no small thing. It's no small thing indeed. And I know, Lisa, that people are going to want to know so much more about this. We've come to the end of our show. And so how can they learn more about your work and get connected to that? Well, my website is my name, Lissa, L-I-S-S-A-R-A-N-K-I-N.com. And I also have a website, thefearcurebook.com, has 
a whole series of guided meditations that are meant to take you out of fear that's free. Um, it's almost two hours of guided meditation in the, I call it the Prescription for Courage kit. So that's mm-hmm. sort of a gift if anybody wants to, you know, have some guided meditation just to bring the body into relaxation response, which is its natural healing uh, state, and also just to bring the mind into more quietness and bring the spirit more alive. And indeed, those are beautiful meditations I have heard them. So thank you, Lisa, so much for being with us today. We're going to have to have you back on the show to um, tell us about how things are going in your life in your next few books, because I know you just don't stop. You just keep going, so we know know. you'll have more to say. (laughs) I love writing. I actually have another book coming out in December called The Anatomy of a Calling, and it's it's a memoir. It's my story of how I got here. Right. I love it. So that'll that'll really tie in the business as a direct byproduct of your purpose. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 All right, Lisa. Thank you so much for being here thank today. Thank you, Cheryl. It was a delight. And thank you all for listening, for those of you who are with us. And remember, everyone, to think big. The world could be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito. Thank you for spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and Leading Conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G.com. See you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.